You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, I'm Dr. John DeYard, and welcome to Life Spa Podcast. And today we have an amazing guest uh, on one of my absolute favorite topics in the world, and it's about breathing. And Anders Olsen wrote a book called Conscious Breathing. I highly recommend you read this book. Um, he's been studying breathing for probably as long as I've been studying breathing and has taken it even way further than I have for sure. And we're going to dive into the details about that. But let me tell you a little bit about him. He's a speaker, author, founder of Conscious Breathing, the Conscious Breathing Method. He's trained more than a thousand conscious breathing instructors and helped tens of thousands of people with their sleep, asthma, physical fitness, ability to concentrate, reduce their stress, anxiety, pain, just by doing something as simple as improving the way they breathe, right? How can you get rid of your pain by breathing? We're going to find out. Anders is also the inventor of the Relaxator, which is an inexpensive breathing device to help retain your breathing. So, Anders, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited. You have no idea to have you here and dive into this topic. And I know we could talk for hours. Um, I would love for you to maybe just jump in, talk about the Relaxator. Okay. Talk, tell us what that is. Tell sure. us how you, how you figured out how to invent it. And um, yeah, show us, show us how it works. Yeah, it's just a little simple device. You, you put it in your mouth and it gives you a resistance on the outbreath. And that resistance helps you to slow down your breathing. It helps you to breathe more rhythmically. It helps you to breathe diaphragmatically, the low breath. And uh, it helps to increase the pressure in the lungs as well as in, in the throat where a lot of us have a, that's a bottleneck for many of us. And it also helps increase the pressure in the, the sinuses. So, so <clears throat> the, the relaxator is kind of an exhalation or an expiratory muscle training device, correct? Yes, that's true, and, yeah. And when that happens, your diaphragm is relaxing, right? Yeah. So, and I know this is, this is sort, of, sort of along the lines of Carl Stow's work, right? Where he was all about helping the body and he's the one who trained, remember the Olympic athletes in, uh, in the Mexico City Olympic Games and they had yeah. the black gloves and all that? Well, those two guys who won the Olympics were the only ones who didn't use oxygen in those Olympic Games and they also won the gold medal. And they were training under this guy, Carl Stah, who was a trainer for singers. And he worked on training them to exhale all the way and more efficiently. So I'd love, can you dive into the details about how exhalatory muscle training would what does that do physiologically to the body? Well, I think also one uh, another important thing that Carl Staub did, he, he helped them to establish a rhythmic breathing. So he told them to, when they were in the starting blocks, ready to, to um, uh, run, they should uh, uh, start running on the exhale. That helped them to keep a better breathing rhythm. I think that is underrated usually, the, the breathing rhythm, because we have a tendency to hold our breath a lot in today's society. And uh, that, uh, for example, uh, um, at night we call it sleep apnea. Uh, daytime, we don't have a real name for it. I call it, you know, whatever, concentration apnea or uh, text message apnea or whatever. Um, so, so, yeah, I just wanted to add that. But the, the idea with the relaxator is that you inhale through the nose. There are devices on the market where you also do inspiratory 
uh, muscle training. I think right. the nose is uh, too important to, um, so you should inhale through the nose and then exhale through the nose to basically make your uh, breath uh, function more efficiently because that's what, what it is at the end of the day. We take thousand breaths each hour and we want to do it as efficient as possible. Can you show us how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So you, you set the resistance between one and five and, uh, and then you hold it with your lips. If you hold it with your teeth, there is a risk you will be tense in, in your jaws. So hold it with your lips, inhale through the nose. So it slows down your breathing and makes your breathing low and it trains your diaphragm basically. Nice, nice. And you know, I, I tried to find, I looked on Amazon to find it and I couldn't find it there. Where do you get it? How do you get it? You get it from our website, consciousbreathing.com. It's not available okay, on Amazon, unfortunately. All right, good, good. Well, I want people to know that. So I think it, it's really great because I think, I think there's, there's also uh, inspiratory muscle training that they use in hospitals, right? Yeah. And actually, there was a recent study that just came out a week or two ago that they're suggesting that inspiratory muscle training devices and techniques for COVID, which obviously right. makes a huge amount of sense because for diaphragm, which is the big muscle of inspiration, isn't working well, yeah. you're not going to have a great shot of getting through a respiratory congestive condition. And they're now recommending that breathing technique for COVID. And in an Ayurveda, you know, my whole thing is Ayurveda, ancient wisdom and modern science. There's a technique that I teach called pratiloma, where you pinch your nostrils and you carve, and then you breathe against ah, okay. partially closed resistance of your nostrils, and that forces your diaphragm to get that extra contraction to get that inspiratory muscle training effect, and you let yeah. it go, and you can add a breath hold to that um, as well. Yes. If you want. Yes, yeah. so that is really interesting. And actually, you can, if you want to, you can just take this apart and remove the membrane, so you could also use it as an inspiratory muscle training if you want to oh really so it can have it can it creates resistance on the inhale as well yeah it does yeah nice wow beautiful so the the the, the rhythmic breathing is one of your um five principles of conscious breathing with rhythmic yes. breathing right so True. i want to talk about i want to talk about the i want if you could go through each of the five for me um but yeah. before that before that I want to make everybody uh, aware of the fact that um, Anders was the guy, if you watched last month's podcast with James Nestor in his book, Breath, um, and he, Anders was with James back, I don't know how many years ago that was, it must have been a couple of years ago, right? Two, yeah, two years ago. And they plugged their nose for, what was it, two weeks? Ten days. Ten, ten days. And they uh, walked around with their nose plugged and they breathed through their mouth for 10 days. And they, had, they measured the effects and the negative effects of, all, of walking around with their mouth open and their nose closed for 10 days. I, let us, I'd love to hear how that was for you and, and what the results of that were. Well, it, to start with, it was a horrible experience because I've been doing nasal breathing for so many years and then suddenly <laughs> start using my mouth. That was, and, and what affected me the most was the sleep. Uh, I at some point I even didn't want to go to sleep because I knew what a horrible experience it would be. So I wake woke up four or five times every night, needed to go pee or just couldn't sleep. And we had this we, we filmed ourselves. So I was uh, feel, uh, sleeping very restless, moving my body all the time. 
and I was snoring like three hours per night and obviously it took a toll on my energy daytime. And what I noticed was that because one of the reasons why I become this breathing nerd is because I used to be this type A personality, always the achiever and find it very hard to unlock the turbo and wind down and slow down. And when I came across breathing, that was by far the most important tool I've come across to be able to unlock the turbo and, and wind down. And what I started feeling after a few days with a blocked nose was the adrenaline uh, kicked in to, to compensate for the lack of sleep. And uh, that uh, it was very familiar, that feeling that I was stressed out with, with uh, no need to be stressed out. I remember several times just uh, making lunch and I almost had to check, okay, do I have all my fingers? Yeah, luckily, because I was <laughs> uh, chopping cucumber or whatever, like, like my life depended on it. And uh, it was really interesting also that my sugar craving that I used to have a lot before and uh, the, the breathing has helped me a lot with that. And it started to increase. So the first few days there was zero mm. sugar craving. And then at the end, the, the last four days, I think I had uh, eight, between seven and eight on a scale from one to 10 and sugar craving. So the last four days it was sugar and ice cream, uh, candy. And the last two days, I think it was pizza and beer. And I usually don't drink a lot and I, I don't eat pizza either. Uh, and actually the feeling was that if I would have continued, I would probably have had pizza and beer every single night because it was, don't take that away from me, that's mine. So it was really, really interesting to, to understand what was going on just because we, we plugged our nose. Oh, well, that explains the, uh, the whole American junk food culture, you know? <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah. When I first wrote, wrote um, Body, Mind, and Sport, and I talked to a lot of pulmonologists, and I would say that, you know, upper chest is fight or flight, and the lower chest is parasympathetic. Yeah. And they would tell me I was crazy, you know, like that's not, there's no science to back that up. I'm going, okay, well, you just proved it, because as soon as you plugged your nose and you had to breathe through your mouth, um, <clears throat> you were doing nothing but emergency survival, eating, stressed out, yeah. turbocharged in every way of your life. I mean, you experienced the rev of a bear chasing you in the woods sort of right yeah and i also got stupid i, I mean several <laughs> times i was amazed how i could be that, that stupid and i guess it was about the oxygenation of the brain it's uh, yeah and and just after a few days i mean uh, if you go doing this all your life it's it's probably tough on your body and your mind yeah yeah god amazing Okay, so the first principle of conscious breathing is breathing through your nose. And obviously, you just talked about one of the reasons why it'd be a really good idea to become good at that. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that and what are some of the tips to get people to do it? Yeah, the first tip is always, uh, obviously to close your mouth, yeah? Uh, and I mean, our mouth is for eating and talking. Our nose is really for, for breathing. And uh, what the nose does, it warms the air, humidifies it, and a lot of the particles, some research suggests that we inhale about 100 billion particles in a single day, even more if you are in a mm -hmm. polluted city. And 
of course, it's a vast different how you present the air to the lungs. If you take it in via the mouth where it's colder and drier and full of these particles. So the airways and lungs get irritated with mouth breathing compared to nasal breathing where a lot of these trapped particles get, um, these particles get trapped and, and then uh, the air is turbinated and, and warmed and humidified. So, I mean, the nose is really an aerodynamic uh, miracle. It's, it's uh, quite amazing when you look at it. And when you see all the space it takes up in the cranium, you must realize that if that thing is only to, to smell the flowers, probably the evolution has gone completely wrong or it is actually that it has uh, some uh, important properties. So what it also does is that it helps, you know, if you inhale through the mouth, the air will have a more uh, turbulent airflow. So the air will go in all directions. So it makes up for high uh, chest breathing compared to the nose that are, is able to drive the air uh, lower down into the lungs. And it's like, it's like the nose and the diaphragm work in, in tandem. So they, uh, some sort of communication there, I guess. Yeah, when I, when I was uh, writing my book about breathing, um, the, uh, the, the, I was researching it and it turned out that when they first created the internal combustion engine, you know how the piston's like a diaphragm, it sucks the air in, you know? Mm -hmm. And then they had a piston like a valve but then initially the valve was really big and it just kind of all the air went in and it exploded in only one part of the chamber and the engine would last a couple of weeks before it would blow up. Uh -huh. And then they created the valve to swirl the air like the nose, like the turbinates do. They swirl the air in a yeah. rarefied stream. And it was that that allowed the, the air to go down and drive through the whole piston chamber. And that's the internal combustion engine we have today, which is exactly like this nose, which is like the valve that drives the air all the way down into the lower lobes of your lungs. And that's my next question. In the lower lobes of your lungs, mm -hmm. there's a predominance of alveoli, it's gravity fed, that's where all the blood is, right? Yeah. So that's where we exchange the CO2. And um, there's a lot of discussion about um, the balance between oxygen and CO2 um, and how we are over-breathing oxygen and we have uh, sort of an intolerance to CO2. Can you talk to me about um, that relationship between CO2 and O2. Yeah, that is so important. And we usually consider CO2 as just a simple waste product, get rid of it as soon as possible. And oxygen is the key. And the more we take in, the better. But my analogy for that would be if, uh, if I drive my car and I drive 50 miles per hour and uh, it consumes, uh, say, half a gallon, um, um, I, okay, yeah, I'm not that familiar with gallon, but anyway, <laughs> if I then decide to, to, double, yeah, to double that or triple that, so I give it one gallon or one and a half gallon, uh, would my car be better off then? No, it wouldn't, right? It, it's just as bad for the car to get too little fuel as, as it is to get too much. And so we may think that uh, more oxygen is better because then we will oxygenate our uh, muscles and our brain. But that's not the case. It's all about balance. So when we overbreathe, which many people tend to do, and especially when we use our mouth, but also it's possible through our nose, then we take in more oxygen. And even though oxygen is, I mean, if we stop breathing, we die. We all know that. So that's because we need oxygen. So we can't survive without it. But 
just as it is a blessing, it is also a curse. It's, it's the balance. I mean, if we think about it, we only store about one and a half liter of oxygen in our body if we weigh about 70 kilo. And if we look at other things, we, we store proteins and, and water and uh, uh, glucose and fat. We have enormous reserves in our body, but oxygen, that's the reason why we only survive a few minutes without breathing because our uh, um, oxygen reserves are so small. So the only reason I can think of for that being is that oxygen is toxic, right? So we can't have too much. So we, we talk about the mitochondria in ourselves. That's our energy plants. And that's why we want the oxygen. That's where oxygen is used to convert the fat and the glucose to energy in an efficient way. And we also call these mitochondria the uh, combustion chambers. And, and like there is a fire in those. And if we have a normal fire burning and we put oxygen on that fire, it will totally just explode, right? Because oxygen is such a reactive gas. Or if we take a bite in an apple and, and put it down for a few minutes, it will start to turn brown. And that's because it starts to oxidize. So even though we need oxygen in order to create energy efficiently, too much of it is absolutely not good because then we will create more free oxygen radicals, which is the highway to inflammations. So when we overbreathe, we take in too much oxygen, which is bad in itself, but we also exhale too much carbon dioxide. And if we combine overbreathing with inactivity, because when we are active, the metabolism increases, right? And in the metabolism, when oxygen and, uh, sorry, when oxygen and uh, glucose and fat are converted to energy, also carbon dioxide is formed. So Whenever we move our body, when we are active, we increase the production of carbon dioxide. So if we are inactive and if we are overbreathing, well, then it's a double negative thing that we lower the CO2 pressure in our, in our body. Mm -hmm. And CO2 has many, many important properties. One is that it relaxes the smooth muscles. And the, the, we have three types of muscles. We have the heart muscle, we have the... Um, the skeletal muscles that we can control with our willpower. And then we have the, um, uh, the smooth muscles and they are everywhere in our body. For example, in our airways, in our blood vessels, in our intestines, in our stomach, uterus. And when we have low levels of CO2, they will start to contract. They will tense up. Probably that is the reason why I needed to go pee uh, several times per night when I had my, my nose blocked because my, my bladder will then contract and it will fill yeah, so, up faster. <clears throat> so everything, when you have high oxygen, creates a vasoconstriction, blood flow to the brain's compromised, blood flow to your tissues compromised. But also carbon dioxide is also considered a sedative molecule well, oxygen is the most stimulant molecule, right? So when you have way too much oxygen and less CO2, you're going to be anxious in sort of, like in Ayurveda, we do breath holds, kumbhak or, or breath retention. And the mm. breath retention on the exhalation was going to allow you to build CO2 up levels and become tolerant to them. And that mm. was used for people who were, you know, anxious and worried and they needed more CO2 to calm them down. Yeah. And then they would do 
breath holes on the inhalation, which would actually, you know, give them more oxygen. And it was used to stimulate folks who are actually like melancholy and, you know, maybe depressed to stimulate them. So they knew thousands of years ago the difference between the two. And yeah. we have a culture now who just, like you said, we're inactive. We sit around a lot. And even if you exercise, it's like for an hour a day, right? But it's not like we're not exercising or moving around all the time like we traditionally did. No. And if we're breathing through our mouth, and, and like you said, being inactive, which I think is a great, I didn't realize that that was the, one of the main drivers of increasing CO2 and keeping that balance was moving, which really explains a lot why, another major reason why it's so important to exercise. But it's also, yeah. it also calms you down. It's not just fight or flight. It's that the actual chemistry of CO2 is to chill you out, right? True, absolutely. That's our natural tranquilizer, I would say. Like, you know, if you have a panic attack and come to the hospital, usually you will get a bag to breathe in and out through. And the reason why that works is because we inhale 0.04% CO2. We exhale 4%. So we exhale 100 times more. So we are basically uh, CO2 factories. So when we exhale that uh, CO2 into a bag and then we uh, rebreathe the air, we just exhale, that means we will fill up the CO2. So the panic attack is a stressed out brain where the, the CO2 levels are low and the blood vessels are constricted. So there is uh, less blood to the brain, less oxygen. And when you breathe through the bag, you will increase the carbon dioxide pressure airways, uh, sorry, blood vessel will open up and you will oxygenate your brain and you will start to slow down. So that basically says it all, right? Uh, Absolutely. And then, and then that brings up the, the, the question in the room, elephant in the room question. Everybody's walking around with a mask these days. Everybody yeah. wants to know, is it actually good for us to rebreathe some of the CO2? What's your take on that? Well, I mean, I think the mask could be detrimental for a lot of people because they don't know how to breathe in the first place and we open up our mouth when we have too much co2 in our body and we're not used to tolerate that much co2 so with the mask we will rebreathe some of the co2 and we're not used to it so we open up our mouth so there is a risk that the mask will lead to um, poor breathing but nice. if we know the importance of nasal breathing then actually putting on the mask could be a perfect tool to improve your breathing, improve your tolerance for carbon dioxide. So it could really take us in both directions, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a great point, because I think a lot of people are like ripping off their mask because they're huffing and puffing and they can't stand it. because yeah. It seems to make them, make them feel like they're suffocating, which is actually you know, how you build CO2 tolerance. Um, so talk a little bit about the, the Bohr effect and, and how important it is to have CO2 tolerance to, to literally you know, bring the, the oxygen from your blood into your tissues. Okay, yeah. can, can I just touch on what you just said? The, um, uh, we, we feel like we are suffocating. I, I mean, if we consider carbon dioxide to be just a waste gas, and then we probably would realize that our breath is our most important function. Without breath, we, we have nothing, right? We have no life. And the function that controls breathing is not oxygen, it is carbon dioxide. Uh, so if you start to hyperventilate um, uh, for a few seconds, you will lower the CO2 in your body and that will then enable you to hold your breath longer because it is the increase of carbon dioxide in your body that stimulates 
the brainstem that will then stimulate the in-breath and on the following out-breath, you will exhale the CO2. So it is the increase of carbon dioxide in our body that stimulates breathing, not oxygen. So uh, if breathing is our most important function and it's controlled by CO2, probably CO2 is a little bit more than a waste product. And uh, that's why, for example, if I'm out running, when I then increase my metabolism, so I increase the production of CO2, I will then breathe faster because my brain center, in uh, 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 the brainstem will be stimulated more Turn often. Yeah, so the Bohr effect is uh, actually, if, if we think about it, if I move this muscle, this muscle will consume more uh, um, oxygen than my, my other arm that's at rest. And it's not a coincidence then that this muscle that I'm moving will receive more oxygen. One of the reasons is because of what is called the Bohr effect, and that has to do with pH. So we have a higher pH in, in the lungs where the hemoglobin then have, um, we, we, most of the proteins in our body, we can see them as a computer. They are either on or off. And uh, the, these proteins, the hemoglobin in the lungs, they have one, um, uh, we can say that they are on and they will then absorb, they will attract oxygen. And then in, in the uh, blood, we have slightly lower pH, but the hemoglobin will still have high affinity for um, oxygen. And then when the uh, uh, blood reaches the cell, we have an even lower um, pH. And that lower pH is the signal for the, the um, uh, hemoglobin to change shape, to go from on to off, and thereby releasing the oxygen. And in the mitochondria where we produce the energy, we also produce carbon dioxide and we also produce heat. And both heat and carbon dioxide, they lower pH signaling to the hemoglobin to offload the carbon, uh, sorry, the oxygen. So this working muscle obviously produces more heat and more carbon dioxide than my muscle that it is, is at rest. So uh, that means then that more CO2 and more heat leaves the muscle reaching the blood and uh, the hemoglobin will then offload the oxygen and the oxygen will go the opposite way so that my muscle can continue to work. So it's it's an ingenious um, uh, mechanism, of course, like our mm -hmm. whole body is. <laughs> great, great invention. So that increase of CO2, um, uh, as it goes, as the, as the pH becomes less and less from the lungs to the blood to the tissues, yeah. that's um, the CO2 levels building up and converting into carbonic acid, which is an acid which lowers the pH. Is that the main driver to lower the pH? Uh, Yes, uh, carbonic acid, and then to actually to bicarbonate or, or, or baking, uh, baking soda. So uh, it, it's uh, that's an intermediate, the, the carbonic acid. It, it uh, so we have CO two and water, and then we have carbonic acid, and then it goes further to uh, baking soda and H plus. Uh, but wouldn't the baking soda raise the pH? Isn't that more alkaline? Uh, well. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. <laughs> but uh, what happens in our body, when, when you, you have the baking soda, you also get an H+, which is a proton. The more uh, H+, you have, uh, the, the lower the pH. 
but when we talk about baking soda, if we buy it in the store, yes, we would consider it an alkaline. Um, I yeah. see. So it's a, it's a series of chain reactions that, that continue to take place that lower the pH. Yes, yes, true. So, yeah. So, so, so in fact, PA, the carbon dioxide production and the bicarbonate or baking soda buffer is a major component in our body in order to have the correct pH in different parts of the body. We have, we have one pH in the skin about uh, five and a half. We have about one and a half to three in our stomach. We have in our small intestine, we have a pH of about seven to nine because there is where we absorb the food. Um, so the pH is really important. It's not only hemoglobin that works differently depending on which pH it's, it's exposed to. It's, it's most protein in, in our body. They, they operate, they are designed to operate at a certain pH level. So if we, if we uh, overbreathe and if we are inactive, if we lower our CO2 pressure, we will also reduce our bicarbonate buffer, meaning that it will be harder for our body to maintain the correct pH in different parts of the body, which will then affect uh, all functions basically. Right, and breathing in terms of your CO2 O2 balance, that has a direct impact on your pH, right? Yeah, with every breath we, we affect pH, right? Yeah. Right, so if you, if you build up CO2 tolerance and, and tell us about the importance of first what CO2 tolerance is and how do we build it up? What are, the, what are some tips that people can practice, exercises people can use at home to try to build their CO2 tolerance? Yeah, it's, it's like with anything. It's like my favorite analogy is like going to the gym. If you've never been there, you never exercise, you probably won't do 100 push-ups. And if you do, probably you will never set your foot there again. So the key is to take it step by step, slowly, not approaches as I did. I figured out that I should have the world's best breathing in the shortest period of time, which is absolutely stupid. But that's where I come from and performance and, and all of that. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have that, but it doesn't really go hand in hand because more than anything, if we want to improve our breathing, it's, it's relaxation we're after. So the relaxation is the key here, I think, uh, uh, when we embark on this journey, improving our breathing and improving our uh, CO2 tolerance. So for example, when you use this, you slow down your breathing, but if you, if you adjust the, uh, the resistance too high so that you slow down your breathing too much, similar then to doing too many push-ups at the gym, uh, at the gym you, you will have sore muscles. With this, you may notice afterwards that you will start to uh, sigh or yawn or, and those are all big breaths or that you have a need to talk a lot or because when we talk, we, we have a tendency to, to breathe more. So that's then a sign of, of that you have uh, done it too hard. So, so you have to adjust the breathing center slowly, slowly to tolerate more and more CO2. So what and, about like um, free divers who do these breathe up techniques and they do long, slow inhale and slow exhale. And then they, uh -huh. and then they do a, obviously a, a breath hold so they can go all the way down with no oxygen and they go down really deep. Yeah. But some of the training that they do during that period of time is when they, when they actually do their breath hold, and do usually a breath hold on a full inhale, inhalation, 
and you'll get the same thing on an exhalation breath hold as well. Your abdominal muscles start cramping and tightening up and all these things begin to happen. Are we building CO2 tolerance when that happens? Because you're obviously, even though your oximeter reading when you're doing that breath hold says 98, 95%, and people yeah. are still going through like major contractions in their belly, they clearly yeah. have enough oxygen. What's making that breath hold so uncomfortable? And a lot of free divers will say, once they get through those contractions, they've got another two or three minutes of, of breath holding in them that yeah. this, this contraction was sort of like, a, I don't know, they call it the mammalian dive reflex where the body's just learning how to be a, a fish again if we all came from the ocean. But there's a mammalian reflex that we hold our breath like dolphins do for a very long period of time. And uh, so I'm curious to know, is that a way to build CO2 tolerance or is that something that you're familiar with? Yeah, I tried freediving myself. I trained a number of, of uh, freedivers actually that have, have taken my courses and benefited a lot actually. I didn't think uh, uh, that I w would be able to, to teach them anything, but actually they found it very beneficial. Um, um, but I think it, uh, an analogy for that could be exercise. We talked about before inactivity leads to maybe lower levels of CO2, while when you're active, that leads to higher levels of CO2. And, but also when we are active, when we exercise, we could do it in different ways. And a lot of people, they exercise in a way where they actually uh, uh, impair their breathing. They, they create poor breathing because they, I mean, I've been uh, nasal breathing and jogging for more than 10 years now. And I, I rarely see a person that doesn't look like, <sighs> like this. They're like swallowing as much as they can. And of course, if you do something often enough, you will establish new habits. So I think a lot of people, when I go to the gym and I hear the people at the gym, they are huffing and puffing and, uh, and, uh, and, and they have their mouth open and they breathe fast and they breathe shallow. And even in the dressing room, you know, taking their, their socks on or whatever, they uh, go like that, telling me that, okay, yeah, they did it at a gym and now they're doing it outside of the gym as well. So even though, yeah, it's probably possible for the free divers because they have their goal. They want to hold their breath for many, many minutes. I'm, I'm not so certain that it will lead to optimum breathing outside of that training regime. What, what I teach, I tend to think is the, the boring thing. The, it doesn't reach any headlines because I'm not teaching <sighs> you should do uh, different exercises where you alter your state and you feel uh, uh, aesthetic or whatever. It's more like the thousand breaths you take each hour. Try to take them in, in line with these uh, simple principles. Close your mouth, breathe low and slow and rhythmically. And over time, you will build up uh, CO2 tolerance. Mm, beautiful. It's very much a, a Vedic concept, you know, where, okay. where <clears throat> you know, they say that even the air the hairs in the nose shouldn't move when we breathe really long, really slow. And in that long, slow breath, that gives the alveoli time to exchange oxygen in and waste out. And it takes time for all that to happen where if we're just, like you said, over, we're just blasting out, you know, major levels of CO2 and bringing in way more oxygen than we need. And we end up tipping the scale, which triggers a whole bunch of basal constrictive circulatory brain fog. Um, yes. 
issues that even cause anxiety actually so yeah. uh, and, yeah, and I'm not saying I'm not saying it's wrong. I mean, there are tons of evidence showing that that you get benefits from from uh, breathing forcefully. But I'm not so certain if you put the long term perspective. Everyone can relate to the fact that there will be a change if they do it short term. But I'm not so certain about the the long term effect. And the way I look at it is that oxygen is the more male energy, and and our society is kind of male dominant while carbon dioxide is the more female energy so it's actually carbon dioxide that is inviting the oxygen it's carbon dioxide that stimulates the brain uh, stem telling us to inhale and then it's carbon dioxide that's widening the airways telling the oxygen to to come along down into the lungs and then it's carbon dioxide that's widening the the blood vessels telling the oxygen to follow along out in the body and then it's carbon dioxide basically that kicks the 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 oxygen from the blood by uh, opening up the the alveoli uh, sorry the the the, um, the hemoglobin yeah yeah no i i love that so then then that begs the the question um what's your take on the, the wim hof method I mean, I had a course uh, yesterday and, and one of the, the homework was to do the Wim Hof exercise. Uh, and uh, I want them to experience, to, to, to uh, make up their own mind, what, what suits me. I mean, if you look at the YouTube videos from Wim Hof, he had millions of views and tons of comments saying it has changed their life. So I have full respect for that. But long-term, I think in general, our world, our society doesn't need more adrenaline necessarily. We need more ability to calm down, to be able to slow down, to be able to... So, so a, way, a way I would evaluate a method would be, has it uh, three years, five years, 10 years from now, increased my ability to, uh, you know, if someone is mad at me, can I react differently? Can I, uh, will I be able to stay calm? Can I will i end up in less conflicts uh, will i be perceived as a nicer person will i feel more harmony or do i need to, to fill myself up with, with another uh, rush uh, uh, many times per day or whatever so so one interesting study they did a, a bunch of medical students they were hyperventilating for 20 minutes and they measured the carbon dioxide levels and they measured the adrenaline and in the first instance, they did it twice. First instance, they were just uh, breathing normal air and the uh, carbon dioxide levels um, decreased by 50% and the adrenaline increased by 360%. And then they did a, 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 the test again to uh, see what was the stress uh, because they felt more stress. Was it the increase in adrenaline or was it the decrease in carbon dioxide? So this time they inhaled 5% carbon dioxide, meaning that uh, the, the carbon dioxide levels were more or less unchanged. There wasn't really any, any difference. And guess what? The adrenaline, despite them <gasps> huffing and puffing like this, which is the hallmark for, for stress and, and uh, for adrenaline, the adrenaline levels were also unchanged, telling us that it's the low levels of CO2 more than anything that induces stress and that gives us the adrenaline rush. So if we engage in exercises where we 
lower the CO2, we will get a rush and afterwards we will feel relaxed. But I'm not so certain that that is the most efficient way. If we want to feel the harmonious uh, state to go the road via adrenaline and exerting ourselves and then feeling afterwards the relaxation, maybe it is more efficient to go the road via relaxation to achieve <laughs> relaxation. Right. Yeah, that, that's a very familiar concept. You know, when we stress and recover and stress and recover and kill ourselves with mouth breathing, um, we're limited by how much stress we can handle, right, in life. Yeah. But if you breathe through your nose, like our studies show, we had significantly less parasympathetic and significantly more parasympathetic during vigorous nose breathing exercise compared to mouth breathing. So instead of going, you know, for the goal very quickly, we actually slowly build the body's ability yeah. to get there. But, I, but when you do the Wim Hof method and, and when you do breath holds in Ayurveda as well, and there are also many breathing techniques in Ayurveda like Bastrika, which is like a, like a yeah. it definitely in Kapalabhate, they all trigger a fight or flight reaction followed yeah. by a major surge in sympathetic reactivity. So I wonder if that's a little bit in play. And then when you put an oximeter reading on your finger and you do a breath hold, uh, like with the Wim Hof technique, you're still going to see during your breath hold period, you know, a dramatic, you know, decrease in your uh, your oxygen saturation in your blood. And if yeah. it, and if your number goes from 98 to the high low 90s to the 80s into the 70s or even into the 60s, yeah. all that oxygen got dumped into your tissues. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. So that means that you are, in a way, building a level, are you, that's my question, are you actually building a level of CO2 tolerance, even though a minute ago, you just hyperventilated your, your brains off, so in a way, with 30, 40 major big hyperventilating breaths, followed by a breath hold, and then the CO2 builds up. Is, is that what's happening there, or is there something else going on? Probably so, something like that you are doing because you are stressing the body, right? The the body goes, okay, how I'm gonna deal with this, and it finds a way. So, like I had this friend, he he's been doing Wim Hof for several years, and he said, when I do the the forceful breathing and then I hold my breath afterwards, I can do eighty push-ups, and and he's uh, over fifty-five, and he has never been able to do that many push-ups before that that's a lot and uh, yeah. uh, there is something that's going on there in the body of course obviously but yeah. the question then is what happens long term uh, if it is beneficial also long term the way he put it which i kind of like uh, he said yeah when i do wim Hof, i'm able to deal with stress when i do your stuff the stress doesn't occur <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm not saying right or wrong here. I have the full respect for all the different modalities that are out there. I just found my way and I teach it to whomever want to listen. And I'm not saying that there is right or wrong. I think, you know, that's exactly the, the, the path that I'm on. I'm, you know, I, I, I breathe probably an hour a day every day. And I've been doing nose breathing since the late 80s with yeah. exercise and tape my mouth every night, all, all that stuff that I do. Yeah. And, and, uh, but I'm also fascinated by, you know, the thousands of years of wisdom of pranayama breathing techniques. And they have so many and they're so complicated and they're so different. And uh, some of them are all about the way that you have, that you talk about long, slow breath, you know, yeah. where you can barely hear or feel, you know, very gentle and kind 
and then there's ones that are more aggressive. At the end of the day, there's a meditation that comes, and that and the whole point of the breathing is to set yourself up for rhythmic, long, slow breathing during the meditation. So the therapy of the breathing doesn't just stop when you stop the breathing; it continues through the meditation, even you know. So there's yeah. there's so much to to learn and to to understand and to delve into, and 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 that brings up um, my next question and I, and um, something I know that you're really passionate about as well mm-hmm. is the ability for breathing to change uh, old emotional behavioral patterns. You know, in Ayurveda they say that um, if impressions, the stresses impacts our heart, something called sadaka pitta, and that impression of stress or hurt or trauma is carried to the brain through a, an aspect of vata or air, like, you know, the nervous system. Mm-hmm. And that's written into the brain, into the kapha, the white matter of the brain, inscribed into this place called tarpaka, which means to record. So these impressions are recorded into the waxy white matter of the brain, which means it's pliable, it's moldable, it's, 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 it's responsive to neuroplasticity. So when I did, I've written a lot of articles in the last couple of years on all the science behind many of the different Ayurvedic breathing techniques, you know, Vastrika, Kapalabhate, Ujjayi, chanting, you know, Bamari where you hum, all these different breathing techniques. And the one common denominator that I saw, Anders, was they all boosted. And like you said, some increased parasympathetic right away, some increased sympathetic right away. But at the end of the day, they all increased and changed neuroplasticity. So they were all seemingly designed to make us conscious, which is another reason why I actually fell in love with your book, was because of the name, the name Conscious Breathing. Because in Ayurveda, it's well understood that we are not conscious. 95% of the things we think and say and do as adults come from impressions from the first six years of life. We walk around unconscious. And how do you become conscious? It's breathing. So I have a hunch, when I saw that book, I have a hunch that he wrote this book because he's all about what I'm all about, which is how do we, how do we, and you know, I've been seeing patients for, since 1984, uh, 1987, I went full-time Ayurveda. So, and Ayurveda is all about becoming conscious. So I was very much locked into how to help guide people through this crazy mind of ours that drives stress into our physiology and and takes us out, however you're genetically wired to do so. So the, the question is, talk to me about your understanding about how these breathing techniques can change our mind, help us drop some of these unwanted emotional patterns of behavior that don't serve us any longer. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, just as uh, oxygen is both a curse and a blessing, I think our mind is well, as well yeah. <laughs> a curse and a blessing. Sometimes we just want to get out of our mind. And uh, the, the way I describe, if someone asks me what has conscious breathing done for you, I, I tell them the main thing it, it uh, uh, is that it has opened up the door uh, uh, a possibility to react differently to <clears throat> incoming stimuli. I'm no longer a slave under the learned behavior uh, when I was a child, which I thought that was me, that was my personality. And I realized that I don't need to react with stress or with fear or with anxiety or whatever comes up on these given stimuli. And that is quite amazing to be able to realize that realizing at some point oh that situation or or that person or or this uh, thing usually made me stressed out and now it doesn't bother me at all and the way i describe it is we have this important nerve the vagus nerve 
that uh, is uh, the name vagus comes from uh, latin i think wandering the wandering nerve so it's a cranial nerve and it is connected with all the organs except the adrenals where we produce the stress hormone so uh, the 80 percent of the information goes from the body to the brain so for the brain to make a wise decision it needs information from the vagus nerve not only the ears and eyes and uh, the brain itself but also from the vagus nerve and when we engage in this low and slow and rhythmic breathing we then go from sympathetic to parasympathetic and the information uh, then uh, from the, the vagus nerve is, is reached the brain more it's like a, a switch uh, could be one way to explain it that i think we are born in a way in, in fight flight we, we need that to survive that, that has ensured our uh, survival during evolution not so much to you know admire the sunset or writing a poem but rather to to kill a, a, an animal to get food to eat and and so when we are in sympathetic that takes over and then the information from the vagus nerve probably isn't uh, that uh, uh, read that much from the brain so when we engage in in the low and slow breathing which uh, you measure the vagus activity also with hrv right heart rate variability so when you have a nice heart rate variability when the the heart knows when to be active and knows when to relax that is a sign of a good activity in the vagus nerve so it is like connecting the mind brain with the heart brain and the gut brain with uh, not only this nerve obviously but with the breath it helps us to take the elevator down from our mind and and uh, into our body and and become more conscious more aware become more in line with our intuition and our, our wisdom we, we are not only our our mind so that's that's the the, the main thing i found and, and um, that's like the hidden agenda if anything if if i help someone that has asthma that person by improving their breathing somehow they will also embark on an inner journey whether they want it or, or not you know as you were talking i, I just sort of realized that maybe there's a correlation between <clears throat> increased CO2 levels, which of course um, allow the oxygen to um, be delivered to the cells and to the mitochondria to make more energy. And that also increases parasympathetic activation, which is the vagal response. And a parasympathetic and a sympathetic response, the bond between the oxygen and the and the hemoglobin gets tighter, right? With more oxygen when you were talking about the emotional side of things, I was thinking maybe, you know, when you're in a fight or flight state, maybe the lock on old, you know, storage uh, of molecules of emotion that we hold on to for dear life as memories of survival, when you're in a fight or flight state, they, they, they hold on for dear life and they're really tight and we don't have access to them. We just go and chase, you know, get, you know, get up a tree, save our life from the bear. Mm -hmm. But when you actually breathe and create, more CO2, more parasympathetic. Not only does the, does the hemoglobin release the oxygen, but maybe also that gives the, the nervous system the feeling of safety to actually release some of these old molecules of emotion. So you actually have more self-awareness, levels of awareness of what's true, what's not true, what's real, what's non-real. You know, is, are those old patterns of behavior 
when I go home for the holidays and I start acting like a four-year-old again with my parents and my family, you know, why do I do that? You know, but if you actually were in a not reactive mode and your breathing can set you up with a, with a physiology to feel open and be more parasympathetic, like you said, CO2, parasympathetic, they're more feminine, they're more compassionate, they're more understanding. They allow us to feel and become more self-aware and more self-aware of, of, and when we become more aware, we can see more clearly what action steps that we can take in our life. And that's sort of a, another Vedic concept. We must first establish the self-awareness. That's, that's like the meditation. That's not where the, the job is completed when you take action. And that's what we don't do in our culture. We just do yoga, breathe, meditate, and we go back and lie, cheat, and steal. And not that everybody does that, but, it's, but, the, but the Vedic prescription was to take action. And I'm wondering if what you're talking about with conscious breathing is setting up a, a facility where, like you said, with asthma, you know that there's a hold on for dear life in there somewhere. And how do we get to it? We create a platform of peace and calm, of vulnerability, where the delicate petals of our protective flower are safe enough to open so we can see more clearly why we created that emotional pattern and then take action to free ourselves from that. Does that make any sense? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and also, I think two aspects I would like to share is that a recent, in my view, why we engage in this um, shallow, fast breathing is probably uh, that you know, before in evolution, when we experienced something that was uh, dangerous, we, that was followed by physical activity. Today, we can get an email and get stressed out, but we're sitting still uh, in front of our uh, computer. And what we do, instead of running for our life with uh, uh, our physical body, we move up the breath uh, higher up in our chest because a lot of the, the fear and anxiety and stuff they are situated in the gut area, right? We, we know that butterflies in our stomach or, oh, I'm afraid to do this and we need to go to the toilet. And so probably a reason why we, we have this shallow breathing is because we want to avoid these, uh, this anxiety, these fearful feelings. So when you start to engage in diaphragmatic breathing, there is a risk that you will get in touch with these fears, that they will come to the surface and you will kind of, oh, no, I don't want to do this or I don't want to do nasal breathing while jogging because that brings me in touch with my, they get me in touch with the, my oldest stuff I uh, stuffed in for, for years. But that is one aspect. It could come to the surface. But another aspect is that it seems that if you start to improve your breathing and start to breathe lower, uh, those things will be taken care of without coming to the surface. So you may experience after some time oh, that used to scare me, or this or, or that, and you realize it doesn't. So, so that is one interesting aspect. Another interesting aspect is that the amygdala, where we, that is considered a, a, a one of the fear centers in the, in the brain. And the amygdala is triggered when we have higher levels of CO2. The way the body interpret that is that, oh, we don't have enough oxygen we need to breathe, so the alarm signal goes off. I mean, if we do that too fast, if we increase CO2 too fast. So in a way, we, I, I think what, the way I look at it is that when incoming stimuli comes in and I'm in a more sympathetic state, I'm more stressed, okay, what should I do with this? The body goes, okay, I code it red. 
This is a, a red code. Whenever this stimuli comes along, I need to engage in parasympathetic. And when I'm in parasympathetic, I can code it green. And what we do then, I think, when we slow down our breathing and accustom the amygdala to tolerate more CO2, it's like we, uh, first of all, we code more of the incoming stimuli as green. Well, there's no worry here, but also we are able to go and look in, in the red box and see, oh, I see that is coder as red. Well, why don't I put it here in the green box instead and recode it? Um, so over time, that, that will have quite a profound uh, effect, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, you know one of the Ayurvedic concepts is to, <clears throat> we don't have to drag ourselves through the emotional mud. No. We don't have to relive it. And I think that's no. exactly what you just yeah. said. Yeah. And that by actually just creating this physiology it's almost, it's a natural process for your body to look in the red box and go, that's stupid fear. That's yeah. a stupid fear. You know, yeah. there was a bear in the cave when I was three years old, but you know, I don't live anywhere near that cave anymore. That's a stupid no. fear, you know? Yeah. And then so you get to, you get to the body naturally goes in by actually building this physiology of acceptance, this, this physiology of, uh, of parasympathetic, you know, dominance, if you will. And that yeah. linked to longevity and health. And then that also gives you the resiliency to handle those stressful situations, um, you know, in ways that, uh, that um, you know, in ways that uh, I'm thinking now um, about like the ice baths, like Wim Hof's ice baths. And I do think yeah. that there's something to that, right? The hormesis of, of we become so comfortable, right? So comfortable in our little bubble. But then you go dive yourself, dive in an ice bath or something. And all of a sudden, your, can your body, and he's obviously the proof and has trained many people, and I do it as well. Um, yeah. I used to do ice baths when I lived in India, partly because that was all there was. There was no hot water, and there was this, you just did cold showers, but it was also a monk thing. I lived in an ashram for a while. You know, when I was studying Ayurveda, was, there was a hospital there, and I was studying there. Yeah. And we all, did, we all did cold showers as part of our, like, you know, rite of passage in a way. Um, yeah. But now I, we I have do that time. as well on my courses. I, I, the, the homework, one of the homeworks is to, to take cold showers. And I, from a breathing perspective, I, I made a video the other week uh, um, showing three stages. Like you go in the, in the shower normally like that and you, you tense up and you breathe forcefully, you are fighting the water. But then if you move on to the next step, you're able to withstand the water. You are slightly less tense and your breathing is a little uh, more controlled. But yeah. the, the th third step where you want to be is where you embrace the water, where it's still yeah. totally cold, but you're more relaxed and you're breathing. Whether it's a, an effect of your ability to embrace the water or if it's actually the driving force. So to me, that is a great uh, breathing exercise. Uh, taking yeah, you took, the, you took the cold water out of the red box and recoded it to the green box. Exactly yeah, what exactly. you just said, right? Yeah, yeah. True. Yeah, uh, it's absolutely, absolutely beautiful. Um, let's see. Well, there's so much more to talk to you about. I think that, um, I think, um, you know, if you have any last minute words to kind of share with us and tips that we could use to help become conscious breathers, that would be great. Um, I'm fascinated. You know, in his book, he goes into so many ways to deal with your sleep apnea, the benefits for your heart, cardiovascular system, circulatory system, aches, pains, fatigue, weight loss. I mean, 
the list of benefits that he writes about are quite phenomenal. So I highly recommend you get the book, read it, follow through on it, and uh, and uh, you know follow uh, on Anders um, you know on his website and get the relaxator because that's such a cool little device. I'm going to get one as well, and uh, we'll go from there. Anders, um, last words. Um, what are the yeah. last last tips you can give us to become perfect humans? Yeah, I, I think we, we talk about uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic, and, and most of us, I think, have a tendency to, to be too much in sympathetic. We want to learn how to get to, to parasympathetic. And if I'm exaggerating now, the inhale, that's sympathetic activity, while the exhale, we sigh in relief. That is parasympathetic activity. So if you close your mouth, and the way, the best way to achieve this low and slow and rhythmic breathing is by, in my view, to prolong your exhalation slightly. Not too much, because then you will build up too much CO2, more than you can tolerate, but slightly uh, prolong your exhalation. And, and the greatest exercise that I think is to, for example, go for a walk and count your steps. You close your mouth, so you breathe only through your nose. You could also bike or you could uh, jog and then you try to take slightly more uh, steps on the exhale. Very simple, and, and it could give you this meditative uh, state, actually. So one last point on that. When you are extending the exhale, you said you can do it too much. How do you know you've, you've built up too much CO2 because you can't go back into rhythm anymore? Is that the key? No, well, you will feel that you are suffocating or drowning or, or and some people love that to, to uh, try to push themselves, which is absolutely fine. I've done it many, many times, but I just noticed as well that that is the most common mistake, that we try to rush the, the tolerance for carbon dioxide. You, you can't really rush it. You, you need to go the way, the way via relaxation, not the way necessarily via performance. Uh, you can, but I don't think it's the most efficient way. Cool. All right, everyone. The book is Conscious Breathing. Um, Anders, I hope this is the beginning of a long relationship with us. I hope to have you back. It's been great. You know, oh, you. whenever you, uh, you know, keep developing all the things you're developing, keep me posted so we can stay in touch and get you back on, the, on our podcast. Thank you. Great being yeah. on the show. Yeah, you bet. Good to have you. Thank you.